A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands. When Harry woke up on Sunday morning, it took him a moment to remember why he felt so miserable and worried. Then the memory of the previous night rolled over him. He sat up and ripped back the curtains of his own four-poster, intending to talk to Ron, to force Ron to believe him, only to find that Ron's bed was empty. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, we of course have an Every Flavored Bean conversation for our patrons. Do you want to tell them what it is? Well, in this chapter, we meet Rita Skeeter, for the first time, we learn about her journalistic practices. And it just made me think about, like, tabloids and and gossip columns and that kind of thing. So I was just wondering, Vanessa, like, what sort of celebrity gossip you like, if you like it at all. I do. And I thought we could just talk about what our sort of guilty celebrity gossip pleasures oh are. I don't feel guilty about mine, but I'll talk about it. Good. Maybe I'll get you to feel guilty about it by the end. No. Everybody, if you want to listen to that, you can at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. So, Matt, today's theme is reluctance, and I feel like it can't possibly have been hard for you to think of a story on this theme. Really? Why? <laughs> I feel like you're someone who overcomplicates things. Like I'm reluctant about everything? Yeah. <laughs> like you're reluctant about a lot of things. It's funny because I had a hard time thinking. I was reluctant to, to nail <laughs> to down a story. To commit to a story? Yeah. Yeah. So, Vanessa, I, I really love my job. I think I have a great job, and I'm grateful for my job, and I hope to keep my job for some time. But I was actually very reluctant to take this job. This job came available when I was already sort of happily established in a position and in a life, right? Like I 
like the teaching I was doing. I liked the research I was doing. I felt comfortable in that role. And I also saw like a future in that role. I saw like a way forward that made a lot of sense to me. And and I spent a lot of years like kind of striving and aspiring and waiting for my professional career to get settled. I think that's sort of the nature of things when you're an academic and you're trying to get a PhD and trying to get a job and then trying to get tenure and all these things. And that had all settled down professionally. Personally, like our lives had settled down as well. Like Colette professionally had really settled into a life. We were part of a really strong friend community, like a part of a really strong spiritual community. My parents had just moved. We felt really firmly established where we were and could really easily envision a life ahead of us in that place. And it looked like a life we would really love. And so we were like, this is great. This is where we are. So this job, the job I currently have, which is I'm the, the minister of the Memorial Church at Harvard, which is Harvard's university church, this job came available kind of suddenly. The person who was in it took a different job elsewhere, and it opened up. And when it opened up, you know, I thought for a moment, like, is that something I would want to do? And then I decided pretty quickly, no, I don't think it is something I want to do. I, I like this life. I like where I am. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here and, and stay in it. And other people thought it was something that I ought to do, and they talked to me about it. And I said to them, no, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> and some of those people said, well, we're going to nominate you for it anyway. And I was like, well, okay, but I'll just say no, <laughs> right? And then, like, some different things happened. Like, the life that we thought was really firmly established in Falmouth kind of fell apart. I had to leave the church, and Clint had to leave the church, and and things just got kind of unsettled. And all those kinds of imaginings of what we thought our life would be there went away. And so that stable future that we had been settled into no longer existed. And then this job became a different possibility, a possibility that we wanted to start imagining. And so I did, you know, when they did ask me to apply for it, I did apply for it. And thankfully, I got it. But this is the breaking news of the story. For like the first six months I was in the job, I was still feeling ill at ease about having taken. I still felt reluctant. I still felt like, oh, this was not, this was not the thing. Like I had a different thing, which was the thing I thought I was going to do. And I just felt like I was struggling against it, even though I was already in it. And one of the things that happened about six months in is I realized that I was holding up the life I was actually living against a life that I had imagined that actually never came to be and wasn't a real thing, right? And my reluctance, even in the job I already had, was due to the imagination of something else which didn't even exist. And once I just realized, like, oh, this is this is my life. This is the life I'm actually living. Then that reluctance just kind of fell away. I stopped trying to compare what I was doing to what I might have otherwise done had the last three years gone differently. And I just kind of settled in. The reason I tell this story is because there was reluctance before I applied for the job. You know, like I decided I didn't want the job. But what's interesting about it to me is how that reluctance sort of persisted. How even after the possibility of another thing went away and I took this job and I started the job and I was working in the job, like that reluctance was almost like there was momentum behind it. That weighed down, I think, my first few months in a way that I'm happy to say I haven't been weighed down, I think, in the in the year or year and a half since. And it's related to the etymology of, of reluctance. The core root of the word reluctance comes from the word luctari, which means to struggle or wrestle, right? And the re in the beginning refers to like to wrestle against or to wrestle back or to wrestle again. And there is something about sort of struggle and reluctance. Like it's like you feel something pulling you one way, but something else is pulling you another way. And you can't kind of throw yourself into a thing with the appropriate amount of energy or enthusiasm because you're being pulled in a different direction. And that's really how it felt, I think, especially during the first few months of me working in this job. Matt, I love that story, especially because 
we think of reluctance as a precursor to accepting something. But I love your point that we can even be reluctant after we're in the thing. Yeah. When we think about reluctance as an adverb rather than as a noun, right? Like, I'm reluctant before I do something. That sounds like a precursor. But there are so many things that we just do reluctantly, right? (laughs) We're doing it because we have to, but we also feel like we're pulled in multiple directions. And that's really an interesting affective emotional experience, to be doing something you're not wholly invested in because part of you is being pulled in some other way. And I think that... That etymology about like struggle and wrestle, that's kind of how it can feel internally when you have to do something, but you're reluctant about doing it. Yeah. And Harry is doing the entire Four Wizard tournament reluctantly. This is not something that he wants to do in any way. Yeah, and he, he must, right? So he feels inner yeah. turmoil while he's, while he's undertaking it. Vanessa, are you ready to tell us every single thing that happened in this chapter in only 30 <laughs> seconds? Happily. All right, I'll count you in. Great. Three, two, one, go. So Harry can't believe that nobody believes him that he did not put his name in, but luckily Hermione and Hagrid do. This is out of order. Uh, They get pulled out of class because they have to do a photo shoot and weighing of the wands and Rita Skeeter is like, oh my God, you're crying. And Harry is like, I am not crying. Um, there, uh, Draco and Harry get into like a little duel and Hermione gets hit in the face and her teeth keep growing and Pansy Parkinson and Snape are really rude about it. The blast ended Scroots need a walk and Draco Malfoy's a jerk. That's great. I like how you just sort of, you know, narrative progression. Mm-hmm. Timeline is not important. Chronology is not important. Let me list it's things. Not. And it worked. It worked. I talked thematically. Thank you. That wasn't a sarcastic comment. That was a legitimate compliment. Like, it totally worked. Thank you. I agree. Matt, it's your turn to do a perfect job. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry wakes up and he's like, is everything normal? And then he's like, oh, no, it's not. And then he's sad. And then everyone's still like treating him the way he doesn't want to be treated, except Hermione, who's like, I believe you, of course. But Ron, he does, but maybe he doesn't because he can't because he's jealous. And then they go to some classes and Hagrid also believes him. And then they go to double potions and Snape is terrible to Hermione. Uh, And then uh, and he gets pulled out of potions and he goes to the weighing of the wands and Rita Skeeter does not write. She just asks questions and the quill writes. And then uh, and then there are photos taken. And that's the end of the chapter. I feel like I missed something at the end, which you just described. But because this is what it was, because you did the chronology, I was going to cheat off you and say the last thing that you said last. But since you said everything out of order, I couldn't remember the last thing. I know. You're a victim. Zoltan. Well, Vanessa, you already kind of pitched us towards the central reluctance of the chapter. And I think there's something really beautifully illustrated in that moment, because I feel like a lot of us have had this experience where you like wake up in the morning and you're like... The back of your waking mind knows that the world is different somehow, but you don't remember it at first. So you're like, oh, everything's normal, right? It's a good day, right? 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 And then it clicks in and you remember that it's not the way you want the world to be, but you still have to get up and and go forth in your day. And that's like the kind of opening moment of this chapter, this like reluctance. The kind of reluctance you were talking about, the, the adverbial kind, which is like, I have to do this, but I feel like I don't want to. And that feeling is going to really kind of weigh me down as I go. And that's what we feel in like the first two paragraphs of this chapter with Harry getting up. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is the lack of ally, right? He's reluctant about this whole thing. He's Mm -hmm. like, I feel like he would wake up and be reluctant and bummed just at the memory that 
he's a quote-unquote champion. But the thing that makes this so horrible and makes him drag so much and makes him so reluctant to start his day is the fact that he doesn't have Ron as an ally. And he tells us as much, right? He says he really thinks that he could handle this, but Ron not being there for him makes it all so much worse. Yeah. And I find that so believable that, right, like— You can really get through something if you have the right support system, but without the right support system, it can be nearly impossible. Yeah. That's really interesting that you brought up the idea of allies. I I hadn't really thought about that, but you're, you're of course, totally right. But it's not just Ron. It's also like if you ask the Gryffindors if they were supporting Harry, they would all say yes. I mean, the Ravenclaws and and the Hufflepuffs and the Slytherins are not. They feel resentment of different kinds towards Harry for this. But the thing that all three of those houses hold in common with Gryffindor is that everyone believes Harry did this on purpose, right? And they cast their sense of support or non-support in just an assumption that he did this. And so even the people who think they're supporting him are not being good allies, which is what makes him reluctant. And all he needs is like a couple of people, especially his best friend, to support him the way he needs to be supported. And then he'd feel less maybe even less reluctance, right? Maybe not reluctance about doing the task, but that ambivalence and that feeling of being weighed down would be certainly changed if he felt like he had someone there to help him move forward into the thing that he's being forced to do reluctantly. Yeah, it's amazing to me the reluctance that everybody has in believing Harry. And the fact that that there's no announcement that Harry didn't do this, that there's no sort of campaign amongst leadership to make clear that Harry didn't do this. Yeah, if I was a random person who hadn't seen Harry's face go blank, I would think that he had messed with the system, right? Or can't read Harry's face, don't know him well enough to read his face. Right, right? Or like, just like 500 people can't all see his face. Hermione is sitting across that's right. the table from him. And so I just really don't understand why there isn't like a message from management here. Why Dumbledore isn't like ding, ding, ding on his goblet. And I was like, hey, here's what's going on. What we have here is a failure to communicate, Matt. This gets to what concerns me about Dumbledore, right? You know, I like Dumbledore's, like, belief in love, his confidence that love is the deepest and most powerful magic. That sounds good to me. What I don't like is that his version of love sometimes is super, like, self-sacrificial. Yeah. And that he folds Harry into that. And so I'm not saying that's what's going on here, but there does seem to be, like, why isn't he thinking about the thing that would make this easier for Harry? We know that Dumbledore believes that Harry did not do it. We know that it's dangerous for Harry. We know that, you know, from Sirius, that, like, probably some dastardly doings are afoot, and people have it in for Harry, right? So both at, like, the larger, like, life and death level, but also, like, the smaller social within Hogwarts level, he's a headmaster. He knows how how these young people operate. He should—you're right. He should say, like, listen, we don't believe Harry did this. We're going to protect him. End of story, right? And there would still be twittering among the among the, the students about Harry doing it, but at least there'd be something official from the school. And I worry that it's because Dumbledore just thinks Harry's got to suffer. Yeah. And like, so his his main thing is like, how do we get Harry to suffer in the way that most effectively saves the world? <laughs> Rather than like, right. how about we just try to avoid his suffering? Oh, I love that point that he, right, he has this master plan in his head. And he's like, okay, like, this is part of his trials. This is, like, him getting sent onto the island with the Cyclops. And, like, you know, this is just what he has to be doing. 
And so he isn't thinking about, like, how do we make his time with the Cyclops as pleasant as possible or, <laughs> like, avoid it? Right. That's right. I mean, I'm not trying to say that Dumbledore is making a like a self-conscious decision, Harry must suffer. No. I just think that because his uh, presumption is that Harry's suffering is part of the plan, when he sees opportunities to, like, quash it or diminish it, he kind of inexplicably avoids it. Like, it's just, like this is one of those situations we know Dumbledore knows. We know that fairly simple things could be done that he has done for others, right? He will he will make statements on behalf of Hagrid or others, right? right? Like, and he's just not doing it for Harry. Why is Dumbledore reluctant to protect Harry? It's pathological. Yeah, it's like, it's internal, and I'm not even sure he's aware of it, but there is a, like, a hidden reluctance that he's not even aware of, I think. Yeah, he will make an announcement at the beginning of every school year on behalf of Filch yep. about how, you know, you're going to get your thumbs chopped off if you do whatever to Filch, but he is not standing up for one of his students. Ugh. I think that there is so much reluctance in this chapter to believe Harry, and I think it's really interesting that everybody is reluctant to believe Harry for a different reason, Hmm. right? Rita doesn't believe Harry because it's a better story if Harry did this. If the one who lived is a little bit of like a risk taker and likes the attention, then her story in The Daily Prophet is better. If Cedric doesn't believe Harry, then he, like, has more support and love, right? Like, and I'm not blaming Cedric for this. If Draco doesn't believe Harry, that means that Draco gets to bully Harry in a better way. Like, everybody is reluctant to believe Harry, and everybody has their own reasons for that reluctance. The thing about Rita, too, is, like, she needs Harry to fit, like, this particular trope or mold of what the hero is and acts like. You know, kind right. of like the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man, who just like, you know, like, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't care about, you know, what the norms and expectations are because I'm an outlaw and a maverick. That's like the trope of a hero that that she thinks her readers want. And so that she, that's what she's doing, right? Let me ask you, though, I think you're right about like Rita and Cedric and Draco. Do you believe Hermione's explanation of Ron's reluctance? Like, is that a good explanation for his reluctance to believe Harry? That he actually does believe Harry, but just is jealous? I think so. I do. And I think that Ron just needs a minute to resent it. And the easier thing to do is to say he doesn't believe Harry. And I think that, you know, we're going to see him in a few chapters decide to believe Harry. And his logic is poor, right? Like, he's going to say, no one would put themselves into that dangerous situation on purpose. And it's like, well, he wouldn't have known that it was a dangerous situation, right? Right. Yeah, right. And so what that response is going to be, oh, darn, like, I don't care that he gets this extra attention. I'm worried about my friend and my love and concern about my friend is going to, you know, supersede my resentment. But I think Ron, Ron just needs a minute to resent Harry. Yeah. And, and there's this narrative being offered to him of he did it on purpose. And so he gets to be like, yeah. Yeah. That makes me wonder, I mean, because we've been using the category of belief alongside reluctance, right? Like, yeah, all these folks are reluctant to believe Harry. But it sounds like Ron's reluctance is not to believe, it's to support. Right. Right? Like, he actually kind of does believe Harry, but he's not ready to support him because how come another thing's happened to Harry? And then that makes me think back, like, is belief actually the right category for all these other folks? Like, hmm. Draco doesn't want to give up his idea that 
Harry sucks. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so, like, that's the belief that he's not willing to give up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's less about believing Harry. It's more about their reluctance to give up other larger narratives that are important to their role or identity in the school. Like, Draco is Harry's enemy. So whatever version of the story where Harry's in the wrong and he can be mean to Harry, Draco's going to believe that. He just does not want to support Harry. He's also reluctant to support Harry, so he's going to not support him regardless, right? And Skeeter just doesn't care about Harry as a person. She just wants her story. She believes in creating the most exciting story, right? And so, like, that's that's her first commitment, right? And the belief doesn't, she doesn't care what the truth is. She just wants the excitement. Draco doesn't care what the truth is. He, he just wants to see Harry suffer and be be marginalized. Cedric, maybe, the, right? That's the, or the Hufflepuffs. Maybe there it's just more like, let's let the Hufflepuffs get some attention. Let's let our champion be a champion, right? Yeah. And that's the thing that they're, they're, they're holding on to. So it has less to do with like what the truth is. I think it's more to do with what people want to hold on to in their own kind of sense of the way things ought to be. Which is something that I do, right? When there is any narrative that validates a point of view that I have on a person, especially someone who I don't like, I don't care if it's true. I'm just so excited to get the gossip. I'm like, I knew it. (laughs) They are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it's a totally innocuous piece of information. But the person who I think really thinks that Harry did this is Snape. Snape is Mm -hmm. reluctant to give Harry the benefit of the doubt at any point. And Snape looks at Harry and sees James, Hmm. right? And he's like, James would have put his name in the Goblet of Fire. James always wanted attention. James was always willing to do whatever. And he just does not see Harry as his own person. And so his reluctance is to see Harry as his own person, but I think he completely believes that Harry did this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, again, like, along the lines of that, I think I was saying before, like, that is so deeply ingrained in his own identity, self-identity. Right. He is the victim of James's bullying, and that created this division between him and Lily, and so much of his current life is about trying to redeem that breach with Lily. Yeah, like, he can't actually, if Harry's somebody else, this whole sense of who he is and what he's doing in the world starts to fall apart. There's a a sense of being in the world that could be easily rebuilt. That's the irony here, right? Like, he could really Mm -hmm. easily rebuild a sense of who he ought to be and how he ought to treat this child and what his loyalties to to Hogwarts and the Dumbledore and all these things ought to be. But that's so deeply who he is, that history, that any threat to it, he just can't countenance and he has to disbelieve Harry. That's right. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I want to turn to another moment of of reluctance in the story, which is interesting. I think it has to do with Hermione, and I think Hermione's right. I just want to explore it a little bit more and get your take on it. So at the beginning of the chapter, Harry's going to breakfast. He doesn't. He's reluctant to go to breakfast because he doesn't want to be on view in front of everybody. And Hermione, as a really good friend, anticipates this, shows up with a piece of toast, and they take a walk together and try to avoid people's stares and the attention. And she talks to him, and she gives Harry this account of, like, you know, I think, I think actually Ron does believe you. It's just this is hard for him. You should acknowledge that it's hard for him. And that frustrates Harry, which is understandable. Like, I think that there's a part of him which is doing the kind of mirror image of what Ron's doing. He understands where Ron is, but that's not what he wants right now. He needs the support, right? And so he gets a little bit angry. And then Hermione tells Harry about how how Ron's, you know, has cause to be jealous or to envy Harry and all the great things that have happened to Harry. And Harry gets frustrated and responds, great, really great. Tell him from me, I'll swap anytime he wants. Tell him from me, he's welcome to it. People gawping at my forehead everywhere I go. And Hermione responds, it says shortly, she's very terse with her response. I'm not telling him anything. Tell him yourself. It's the only way to sort this out, right? Hermione, even though she understands where both of them are, exactly what their deeper feelings are and also how those feelings are translating into outward kind of hostility, she's just like totally reluctant to broker any kind of peace. I don't think I would have noticed that moment very much except that we were doing this theme of reluctance. And I'm thinking about what is this? Mm -hmm. You know, like she's willing to interpret their behavior to one another, but she's reluctant to do anything beyond that. I just wanted to get your reaction. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that this is just the correct strategy. Yeah. She's like, I'm not wasting my time on this. It's not going to work. I think if she thought that it would actually work, this like shuttle diplomacy, that she might actually engage in it. She's just like, I'm looking at the two of them and this is actually about feelings. And like... They just need to feel their feelings. <laughs> I'm like, so why yeah. would I waste my time with this? Yeah. And like the thing that I can do is just like love them both. Yep. And she tries different versions of this, which we see in the chapter, right? When they're all in herbology together, she's talking yeah. to both of them. Yeah. Right. It's not that she's not willing to engage with both of them and like put in some awkward effort. It's that she doesn't think going, hey, Ron, Harry is feeling like this. Oh, yeah. Harry. She's just like, this, this, you guys need to mature and get ready to have this conversation yeah. on your own. I think she's right. I just think this is the right strategy. She's reluctant to waste her time. I had this intuition that Hermione was right, but I wasn't really like sure how to sort through it. And I think the problem was within my framing. I said, she's reluctant to broker peace. That's actually not what's going on. She's reluctant to waste her time, as you said, right? Right. The best way to broker peace would not be to, like, arbitrate their argument. Like, because you can even see it in this moment. Like, she says to Harry what's going on with Ron, and he's like, great, well, you go tell him. Like, she's like, oh, wait, now you're arguing with me, and I got to be your arguer for him? Like, no, I don't want to do that, right? That makes sense. The best way to broker this peace is to interpret their feelings to one another 
and try to facilitate some conversation, but I'm not going to carry your angry messages to one another because that actually won't broker peace. So her reluctance is, as you say, is to broker peace badly or to waste her time trying to repair something. She's doing what she can, which is sitting between them in, in class and talking to both of them and saying what's actually going on so they can build some empathy and understanding, but they got to get there themselves. I'm also wondering, Matt, if one of the things that she's reluctant to do is to fall into the trap of gender roles Hmm. of like, I'm not going to be your mom. Like, I'm not going to be your caretaker here. Yeah. Right. And I think that as someone who was a girl in the 90s who was friends with boys and like in groups of friends with boys, I feel like, you know, I was in an improv troupe in college. There was a year that I was the only girl in the group. It was nine men and me. And like, it was just wild. Every scene we did, they would start calling me mom. The default of responsibilities that like they just thought should fall on me. But I would imagine that this is something that happens to Hermione. We certainly see it throughout the books. The boys just assume that she's going to pack for them in book seven and then complain that she packed a pair of jeans that don't fit anymore. And so I can imagine her just pushing back on that also, being like, I'm not going to do this. Like, I have studying to do, and I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And also just like, you know, we're speaking about gender roles, like boys' anger is allowed, right? They're allowed to express, and girls in traditional gender roles are the peacemakers who, like, absorb that anger and translate it to others, right? And I think you're right. She's stepping out of it. And I think that's that's also part of what's going on here. Ugh, she's the best. (laughs) We're not reluctant to admire Hermione. Never. Not in the least. Never. Matt, I have a little fun observation. I think my observation is fun. You can, I have an observation. You can tell me whether or not you find this fun. Harry is like essentially about to be poisoned in Snape's classroom. Snape has given an assignment that everyone has to make some sort of antidote. And he's like looking around the classroom and he's like, we're going to test this by poisoning one of you who I will pick randomly, making eye contact with Harry, winking at him and being like, it's definitely going to be you. So Harry is sitting there and he's like, I'm definitely about to get poisoned. And Snape is definitely going to like test Neville's cure on me just so I can suffer before being healed. Like this is inevitable to Harry in his head in this moment. And then Colin Creevy comes in and is like, Harry, you're needed, and we need to take your pictures. And Harry is legit like, I would rather get poisoned. <laughs> I would rather stay in this class. I am so reluctant to be the center of attention. I am so reluctant to go anywhere alone with Colin Creevy, to be called out in the middle of class to do this stupid thing that I didn't even want to do. But he is like looking longingly at the classroom, and it's like, if only I could stay and get poisoned. And I do think that that is one of the things about reluctance. I feel like often I do the thing that I'm the least reluctant to do. Like, I hate, hate, hate flying. But the thing I hate more is not seeing my family. And so I fly, right? So even though I'm super reluctant to fly. I'm more reluctant to not fly. And we just see that so clearly. Like, that is how much Harry does not want to be the champion. And it's just fascinating because we were talking earlier about how nobody could really see his face in the Great Hall. Well, everyone in class can see his face now. Yeah. 
it points back to the etymology of reluctance I gave, which is about sort of struggle and wrestling and like turning back towards something, even if it's not the thing you want to do, right? I mean, that's exactly what that kind of fun moment of like, I think I'd rather get poisoned is. <laughs> and the thing about your flying and, you know, as our listeners might know, because I've told the story before, I got out of the Navy as a conscientious objector. And after I did, a lot of people, especially people who are interested in peace and that sort of thing, like commended me for my like heroism or something. And it didn't feel that way at all. It was like, oh, I have two things I don't want to do. And I had to choose which one of the things I don't want to do as the <laughs> thing I don't want to do that I have to do. Right. And I just kind of ran away from one thing into the other. Right. It wasn't like a big courageous choice. It was just like, oh, I guess I have to do this. Right. It was all reluctance. And there was reluctance at at every every doorway was one not one I wanted to open. Yeah, and that boy, that sounds a lot like so much of Harry throughout the books when you think about it. Like everything he's called into, like the end of book one, right? He's like, I gotta do this. I don't want to do this. You think I want to go confront this? I, I have to, right? It's yeah. That feeling of reluctance is present throughout. It's also, I should say, since I talked, you know, I gave Rita Skeeter a hard time about her tropes of heroism as sort of like the the maverick outlaw. Another trope we have of heroism is the reluctant hero, the person who, you know, is called into service despite not wanting to, but, right. but does it and is made more virtuous because of that reluctance. Harry, Harry fits that trope for sure. Yeah. The one that J.K. Rowling wants to put him in. Yeah. Right. So Matt, this is our last Kavruta for a little while, and I have a question for you. So at the end of this chapter, we get the title of the chapter happening, which is they weigh the wands. They make sure that all of the wands are in working order. So Ollivander comes and he assesses each of the wands, and he somehow magically can tell everything about each of these wands. He's like, ah, yes, it's this many inches, and it has this as the center, and... And what's so interesting to me is that he he has tremendous preference for the wands he made. He's like, ah, Cedric, yes, this is a well-made wand. It has all these components that I respect. Ah, yes, Harry, it also has all these things I respect. Oh, Fleur, it has the center of a Vila hair, you know, that I don't work with that material. And then same with Crumb, right? He's very critical of the wands that he did not make. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to me that this this weighing of the wands is supposed to be about fairness. It's supposed to be about making sure that each of the wands is in working order so that these four people can compete equally with one another. But immediately, there seems to me this, like, smack of real unfairness, right? Fleur apparently could have her own wand designed with her grandmother's hair. Like, that seems like a posh thing that a rich person could afford, And we know that Neville, if he had been selected, wouldn't even have his own wand. And Ron in book two would have a broken wand. And so my question for you is this. Should they actually hand out four of the same wands and be like, this is what's fair. You all get the same wand. They are made by a wand maker who none of us know in Egypt and here are the four wands. Boy, that's a great question. Or would that create its own unfairness, right? Because yeah. maybe some people would have their own attachment to the wand. It would work better with them. Yeah. And my answer is that I both of these options are unfair, but I would prefer the unfairness of 
a regulated wand, of like the Egyptian wand that comes in, right? Like a regulated ball that Tom Brady couldn't deflate, whatever it is. I think that there's something so inherently unfair about this home court advantage at Hogwarts and now about a British wand maker essentially coming and destroying the confidence of two of the students and booing the confidence of two of the other students, that I think anything to make this as impartial as possible, even if it is a failed attempt, is a gift. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that's the right answer, although maybe I have a different I have a different strategy for improving fairness because... Please. Well, first of all, I totally identify with this, this idea of home field advantage, right? That like, And you can see some of this anxiety in the previous chapter when right. Karkarov and Madame Maxime get so upset. It's You can tell there were negotiations about what the conditions were going to be for us to participate here. And they were all to try to promote fairness because having the event at your school is indubitably like a huge advantage. And here's one of them. Like the, the local wand maker shows up to assess the kind of working order of your wands, presumably also to assess, like, are they cheating somehow? Is this a fair wand or whatever? So, I, you know, I went to Notre Dame for college. We care about football at Notre Dame, or <laughs> we traditionally do. <laughs> One of the things about Notre Dame football is that we are independent. We don't belong to a conference. And college mm. referees are hired by conferences. So even when we play at mm. home, the team we're playing, they bring their conference refs to our stadium Ooh. to ref the game. And of course, you know, Notre Dame fans feel like it's unfair all the time because we don't have our own refs. But, you know, you can see, like, this is analogous to what's going on with Ollivander. Like, the, the wand is the most important thing for a wizard. It's a British wand maker who is assessing these wands. That has to feel unsettling to the other folks. But the thing that worries me about the solution of, like, a, a standard wand made by someone who's from, a like, a neutral, uninvolved territory or whatever is we've heard so many times that so much of the success of one's wizardry has to do with the relationship between the wizard and the wand. Right. So I think what they should do, especially because, like, this is a huge international thing. Clearly, it's in the papers. Like, people care about this. There's yeah. money behind it. There's ministry behind it. Like, give everybody great wands. <laughs> right? Like, instead of having, like, Ollivander be the the person who assesses the wands, bring the local wand makers from all places. If someone has a st- substandard wand, subsidize them getting a really well-made wand that they can use in the competition. There's money for this, right? Just like in the NCAA or in professional sports, <laughs> there's money to make sure they have the right equipment. And they every person has a wand they feel confidence using and fits them and was crafted by a craftsman they trust and who understands how they approach magic. It seems like there's there are other opportunities here. I think my question goes to like the deeper questions of fairness, right? Like mm-hmm. someone like Fleur, who is obviously positioned so that she has the wealth to get like this already well-made wand, is mm-hmm. probably going to be the student who rises to the top of... Bobaton anyway. So, like, yeah. is this solution or any solution kind of inserting the fairness too late into the game? Like, has the is the right. unfairness already deeply bit built into the system? And so, like, any solution now is actually just not really significant. And I think maybe, well, that's a hard question because I don't know how the Goblet of Fire adjudicates these things. Right. Like, if Ron, although he has a bad wand, if he is actually the champion, will it Will it lift up Ron, right, in the hopes that he will get a good wand so he can be the champion and participate 
as fully as possible with all his skills? Or is the Goblet of Fire doing like the SAT and just saying like, oh, we're going to reward the people who are the best because they already have all the resources to do the best on the SAT, right? Like, So I think I don't know enough about the Goblet of Fire, but I think just for the sake of this reading practice, I'm going to say it's too late. The the unfairness is already built into the system, and any of the measures we take now to make the wand adjudication or the wand distribution more fair is just sort of frosting on a cake that's already baked. Mm, it's never too late, Matt. Good answer. It's it's never too late to try. It is too late to succeed, but it is never too late to try. And maybe next time we'll go a step back and a step back and a step back. Good answer. I like it. You know, the the old saw, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? You can't do the Mm -hmm. whole thing right now in this moment, but you can do something and that might make a difference. And anytime you promote fairness, that creates conditions where the promotion of fairness becomes the norm. Yep. Great. Good answer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Lynn. Hi, Sacred Text team. My name is Lynn. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm calling in response to your discussion about Trelawney giving group punishments during your episode on rage. When my oldest was in third grade, one of the teachers decided to use group punishment because a couple of the children were acting out and disrupting. And it didn't work. What happened was instead of policing each other, every time they got in trouble, more and more children joined in in the acting out and disruption because they thought, well, I'm going to get in trouble anyway. I may as well do the thing. And my son, along with a handful of other kids, just felt more and more punished. They believed in justice and they didn't understand why they were being punished for everybody else's behavior. Another teacher sided with me in my fight against these group punishments. And that teacher said, if you give a group punishment and the very first time it fixes the behavior, then it works. But if you give the group punishment and it doesn't fix the behavior the first time, It will never fix the behavior. And that was what we saw happen. 
Um, my son was miserable. The teacher who was doing this never understood. My son felt humiliated by some of these punishments, and the teacher thought they were funny and um, was very uh, disturbed and, and horrified to discover how many children were being hurt by this. So I guess I'm calling because I want this to be a blessing for anyone who endured these group punishments when they went awry for those kids who tried really hard to do the right thing and were going to get punished anyway, and for those kids who joined in in the misbehavior because they're going to get punished anyway. And I really feel for those children in Trelawney's class, especially Lavender. So that's my blessing. Thank you. Lynn, I'm so sorry for your son's experience in that class and also so proud of him for not engaging in this behavior that the punishment served to promote rather than diminish and just took the punishments rather than engaging in this. That I mean, it sounds like you're raising a really, a really great child. Yeah. And I agree with you. As I mentioned previously in the episode, I served in the military. And I think especially in like early training, this sort of like, we will help you train each other by punishing you all. So if you don't like it, you who are being punished, you bring up the person who's letting you down. I mean, I think the philosophy behind it is to build teamwork. And maybe, like you say, in some situations, it does build a kind of teamwork, but I think too often it builds a kind of resentment or dissension within the community or within the ranks. And that, yeah, and it, it's effective maybe in like correcting sometimes in a, in a narrow sense, but it usually just leads to leads to feelings of shame and anger and injustice, as as you're saying. And in the worst versions, I think, leads to exactly what you described. So I'm really sorry for you and I hope it resolved well in the end. At the very least, I hope your son has moved on to better classrooms and better systems of administrating discipline. And thank you for advocating for him and for the other students in that classroom and doing what you could and working with other teachers to try to make it right. Yeah, Lynn, I really want to echo everything that you said. And I love that you've turned this into a blessing for Lavender. You know, we talk a lot about the poor pedagogy at Hogwarts. And I love you rather than criticizing the poor pedagogy at Hogwarts, also just lifting up the students. And I think, Matt, you were right to lift up Lynn's son. So thank you. And boy, was that annoying. Now's the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Daryl Mudra, 93, a football coach, a fisherman, scholar, and author. Betty Pilachowski, 85, a loving mom-mom to so many. Masamba, 46, a father of three and a husband. Bjorn Halmerson, 74, an uncle, brother, athlete, teacher, and coach. Paige Wilson, 96, a mother, Grammy, an actress who never lost her sense of wonder. Norbert Teklin, 98 and three quarters, a farmer, patriarch, and cookie lover. Inky's waiting. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them.
Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I need to do two. The first is just for Hermione bringing this toast to Harry. It is Ariana Nettleman's favorite part of the entire series of Harry Potter. So I have to shout it out as just a brilliant act of friendship. And so a blessing for Hermione and Ariana for that. But I want to bless Hagrid for this moment where he says to Harry, you say so, so I believe you. And Hagrid then is like also Dumbledore says <laughs> And I believe Dumbledore. But I just, you know, you say so, so I believe you. What a beautiful blessing to receive from a friend. So I want to bless Hagrid for that. What about you, Matt? I want to bless Ollivander. There's this poem by W.H. Auden called uh, Ora Canonicae. And in one of the parts of it, he reflects upon just like what it's like to see an artisan who is the master of their craft, like just totally absorbed in it and just absolutely like facile with every part of it and there is something really cool about like seeing you know when you see a great pianist play a piano or you see like a letter press printer working with a printing press to see Ollivander just picking up these wands and just being able to discern so much about them just by touch and weight it's cool it's craftsmanship craftsmanship's cool so i just want to bless Ollivander and all our crafts people and makers out there who are listening Vanessa, next week we are reading Book 4, Chapter 19, The Hungarian Horde Tale, through the theme of annoyance. Can't wait. A couple of announcements before we give our thanks. We are doing our Don't Be a Dursley campaign this month. We are fundraising for On the Rise, an amazing organization based here in Boston. We have a goal of $10,000 for that. You can find out more by going to harrypottersacredtext.com. We also have some pilgrimages that are still on sale. And of course, we have ad-free episodes available on Apple. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gampenkum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week to Lynn for her voicemail, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. HarryPotterSacredText.com. Is that right? Is that our website? Yes. By going to HarryPotterSacredText.com. You know? <laughs> it's only been seven years. What do you want from me? <laughs>